Let's bow in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity of coming into your presence this morning and acknowledging your goodness and your grace and your presence here with us. And as we come to the Word of God, Father, we don't come lightly and we ask that you would just help us to hear what you are saying to us this morning. Your Holy Spirit will take your words and apply them to each of our hearts that we might go from this place knowing that you have spoken to us and you've challenged us in terms of our walk with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been the recipient of mixed messages from another person? One minute they're all over you like a rash, and then the next breath they seem cold and distant and consequently have little to do with you. And you're left confused and uncertain about the nature of the relationship that you have with them. Mixed messages have a tendency, don't they, to undermine our confidence. And we have even seen that in recent weeks with the recent uh, rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine. All sorts of changing advice or mixed messages around the sort of age groups who ought to be taking certain vaccines have meant that people have become confused. They've lost confidence about going ahead and getting vaccinated. Uh, and fearing that somehow they will almost certainly be subject to some form of adverse reaction. Well, it was also the case that the people to whom the Apostle John was writing here in this epistle were also subject to mixed messages. False teachers had arisen in the church, and had been, as had been predicted by Paul and the other apostles, and they were seeking to lead people astray by following teaching that had much of its roots in the prevailing philosophies around them. And one of those philosophies we were reminded of last week as Pastor Josh preached was known as Gnosticism, a teaching whose followers claimed to have higher knowledge only available to those who were enlightened, those who were initiated into this secret knowledge. And as we were reminded, Gnosticism also asserted uh, that matter was evil and spirit was good. And one of the overflows of that understanding was that it not only undermined the humanity of Jesus, but it also led to a view that you didn't matter what you did with your body, it was your relationship with God, your spirit, that was most important. And this sort of teaching had obviously caused problems in the church to a point where a number of people who had imbibed it had left the church. We see that in verse 18 following, where John refers to them as having gone out from them because they were not of them. They weren't on the same page doctrinally or spiritually with these believers to whom John is now writing and seeking to bring some assurance. John's concern, therefore, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, is to address the confusion and the uncertainty that had arisen in the hearts and minds of these believers regarding their walk with God and their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've already seen last week how John addressed some of this confusion head on in chapter 1. There were believers who, as a consequence of this false teaching, were denying that sin affects our relationship, our fellowship with God. There were others who went further to deny sin's existence in their life. They had arrived spiritually and sin was no longer a problem for them. I remember as a teenager, family coming to the church where my dad was the pastor and the husband of the 
family had made this very claim. He arrived at a state of sinless perfection, so he declared. And my dad, being the cheeky sort of pastor he was, turned to the man's wife and in front of him asked her this question, is this true? Is your husband perfect? He never does anything wrong. And all she could respond with was a wry smile that told my father everything he needed to know. Still others denied sin's existence at all. And that still happens today, doesn't it? For example, people so easily redefine things like sexual perversion or immorality or pornography as alternate lifestyles, finding yourselves perhaps adult entertainment or perhaps even marriage equality. And as a consequence, John is concerned here to bring his readers back to the basics of their relationship with God to provide them with assurance that they can have certainty in their relationship with God. He did not want them to be people who simply threw their hands up in the air and said, I don't know what to believe anymore. And the issue that John therefore addresses here before us this morning is this. How can I be certain in my relationship with God? How can I objectively examine my life in such a way that it brings me assurance of my salvation? Yes, that my faith is real and genuine. We can know, John says in verse 3, we can have certainty that we have come to know him, that is Jesus. And the reason for that is that there are certain tests, certain evidences we can look to in our lives which will demonstrate to us and to our fellow believers whether we are a child of God or otherwise. Like an electrician who takes his test meter and he inserts the probes into the power point to see if it's live, to see if there is power running through it. So John is getting these believers to probe themselves, to examine themselves spiritually, to see whether they are exhibiting genuine spiritual life. And the very first issue he wants them to consider is this, whether their lives are characterised by a faithful obedience to Christ. If you look at verse 3 through to the first half of verse 5 of our passage, you discover that one of the evidences or indications that our faith is genuine is that we have truly come to know him, as John describes the Christian life here. One of the evidences is a life transformation that shows itself through the keeping of Christ's commands. By this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commands. And the word keep here has the idea of carefully guarding and observant obedience to what God requires of us. And this is something that will be the natural overflow of a life given over to Christ. A lifestyle of habitual and faithful obedience to the Lord. An obedience that has as its foundation the word of God, which after all is God's revelation of himself to us. A revelation that finds its highest expression in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And this day-by-day -day ongoing commitment to obedience should not be a surprise to us, for after all, does not the scripture declare that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. No longer are we those, as to use the expression of Ephesians 2, who are children or sons of disobedience, for we have been made alive in Christ. 
by His great love and mercy towards us. Yes, we are those who have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and we've been placed into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. In other words, we have been given a completely new life, a completely new orientation and, and allegiance in life, a new way of living that expresses itself in a desire to be found pleasing to Him, a desire that results in faithful obedience to all that God requires of us. And what John was expressing here, of course, is not something new. His readers would have been very familiar with the teaching of Jesus himself back in John 14 and verses 23 and 24 where he says this, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. There is no escaping, is there, the ramification of both what Jesus says in John 14 and what John is saying here in this passage to us this morning. To declare that you know God, that you love God, yet fail to just demonstrate a faithful obedience to his commands is to demonstrate, as John declares here in verse 4, that you're a liar and the truth is not in you. And the reason for that is simply because our lifestyle contradicts our profession. An unchanged life is the sign of an unchanged heart. Whereas a lifestyle of habitual obedience gives evidence of real or genuine faith. But having said that, we need to make a couple of points by way of clarification just to highlight what John is not actually saying here in this passage. And the first thing that John is not saying is this, a Christian never sins. That was an error that we, were refer we mentioned last week in our message and it's something that I alluded to because back in verse 8 of chapter 1, John says, doesn't he, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Again, in verse 1 of chapter 2, he reminds us that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, one who speaks on our behalf with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, what John is referring to here when he speaks about those who are disobedient to God's commands is a lifestyle of habitual disobedience where a person continually goes on uh, disobeying the Lord as a pattern or a way of life that betrays that a work of transformation has never taken place in their life. That's the sense of the original language here. And so John can rightfully say that they are liars and the truth is not in them. And he can say that because Jesus himself said it, didn't he? He talked about people who were of their father, the devil. They were simply reflecting his character and his desires. And the devil himself had no truth in him. He is a liar and the father of lies. But the second thing we need to say by way of clarification this morning is this, that our obedience does not save us. To think this way is a contradiction to the rest of the teachings of Scripture. None of us here this morning can ever say that we have done enough in and of ourselves to make ourselves acceptable to God. All our righteousness, the Scripture says in the Old Testament, is as filthy rags in God's sight. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's righteous standards. And yes, even if we were to just stumble on one point of God's law, James reminds us, 
that we are guilty of breaking it all. Obedience in and of itself will never save us. And that was the trap that the Pharisees, those religious leaders of Jesus' day, fell into, didn't they? They burdened themselves and others who listened to them with all sorts of rules and regulations that made life a misery. We think some of the restrictions and the regulations that we've had to put up with during these months of COVID have been uh, annoying, but it was nothing to the burden that these Pharisees imposed upon people who were seeking to be found righteous in God's sight. No, salvation is always an act of God's grace to us through faith alone in Christ's finished work on the cross of Calvary. And our obedience, rather than being a means of to salvation, ought to be the overflow of a life that has been transformed by the Spirit of God. We know the words of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 so well, don't we? We're so familiar with those words. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. But you know, we often forget the very next verse in verse 10, which goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And one of those works is a life committed to faithful obedience to Christ. But there's one more point I need to make by way of clarification before we move on. Neither is John saying here in this passage that obedience stands in isolation to the other truths that he's going to be sharing in this passage. I'm sure most of us have heard the expression uh, about another person who has been referred to as a leading light. Uh, they're a person in their field of expertise or perhaps the organisation in which they're involved who are regarded as the kingpin. They're central to everything that happens or has been done. And it's always used to describe someone who is a prominent or an influential person, uh, people who are ahead of the game, as it were, and they're usually regarded as the most important or successful people in their field of endeavour. Pace setters who set the standard for others to follow. Well, the term leading light actually had a slightly different connotation when it was first used. It was actually used as a nautical term and it used to refer generally to beacons that were set in a passage to show where the safe passage was when entering shallow water or dangerous waters. And the leading light was actually the rear light that stood at a higher elevation to the other beacons and it was the light that was closest to the shore or the closest to the safe passage. And the other beacon would be directly in front of it. And when those two lights were directly aligned one to another above and vertically, then the master of the vessel who was guiding his ship into the harbour knew exactly that he was on the right course, spirit, uh, right course to make it safely. And there is a sense in which obedience is that leading light. It's one of evidence amongst others when they're perfectly aligned, demonstrate to us that we are on the right course spiritually. This habitual pattern of obedience in our lives is not something that we should find hard or a drag because as John reminds us over in chapter 5, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments 
and his commandments are not burdensome. We delight to obey out of love for our Lord and Saviour. No wonder John goes on to declare in verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God is perfected or is being perfected. In other words, the love of God, which Romans 5 tells us has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is given to us. That same love is that which enables us to love God and to love others. will go on reaching its maturity, yes, its highest expression, when we live in faithful obedience to Christ. To be loved by God and to love him in return not only creates a desire to obey him, but also to demonstrate it practically in daily living. Yes, a lifestyle of obedience to Christ will show that we truly know him and belong to him. And it needs to be demonstrated in conjunction with the other truths in the rest of this passage that we are looking at this morning. And the second of those truths is this. To know Christ, to have fellowship with him, to abide in him, is to demonstrate a growing likeness to Christ. A likeness to Christ that enables us to live or walk in the way that he did. You know, it's been said that everyone in this world has a double. And the official term, I believe, is doppelganger. A lookalike who physically resembles us in every way. Someone who is so similar to us that when people see them, they take a, a double take because they think they are looking at you. I had an occasion in the past by being told by a visitor to my church that when I got up to preach, she got the shock of her life because she thought that Kevin Rudd was going to be the preacher that morning. <laughs> Another restaurant owner told me in Melbourne as I was dining with my colleagues there that evening that I was the spitting image of the Russian ambassador to Lebanon. <laughs> After checking out his photo on Google, I decided that he wasn't being very complimentary to me. I certainly don't want to be identified with any of those two men. But you know, I want to be more like Jesus. To reflect his person and character, to reflect his word and deeds, to be his doppelganger, if you like, in every spiritual sense of the word. In fact, John tells me here in this passage, whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. That is, we ought to be living in the same manner as Jesus lived. And it's inconceivable to John that the life of a believer should be anything less than an ongoing reflection of his, the person of our Lord and Saviour. And the reason for that is very simple. From the moment you and I placed our faith, our trust in Jesus alone for our salvation, we begin to undergo a process of change that we refer to as sanctification, the process whereby we are being transformed into the likeness or the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, and we with all unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory into another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The NIV translation puts it this way, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
You know, just as a human child grows and matures and becomes more and more like its parents, they begin to show more and more of their parents' characteristics, whether it be in terms of personality traits, disposition, looks, height, stature, intellectual capacity, or yes, even their idiosyncrasies. So too for the true believer, there will be a process of maturing where we become more and more like our saviour Jesus. And our responsibility therefore is to cooperate with the work of God's spirit who is very much instrumental in this process as we progress in faithful obedience to God's word. And as his Holy Spirit takes that word and applies it to our hearts that we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, the scripture reminds me that's a process that is ongoing. It will only be complete, as John reminds us over in chapter 3 and verse 2, when the Lord Jesus himself comes again. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. If we belong to Jesus, if we know or abide in him, to use John's language here, then no matter what stage of spiritual growth we're at, there should be some reflection of the character and the person of Jesus. Yes, learning in increased measure to live as Jesus lived, to humble ourselves and to serve as he served. Remember those words in Philippians 2? Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself and taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Yes, even when he was arrested and abused and beaten, he refused to retaliate. Peter tells us in his epistle, for this to you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And even when he hung on the cross, his prayer for his enemies Yes, even those religious leaders who had condemned him, the fickle crowds who had turned on him, the soldiers who had driven the nails into his hands and feet, and yes, the disciples who had deserted him. His prayer was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And these are just a few examples this morning amongst many that we could point to about what it means to live like Jesus, to walk like him. For he was a person who said to his disciples, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And that brings us to the third or final test of the genuineness of our faith which is laid out in verses 7 through to 11 of our passage. If we truly belong to Christ, if we know him, then there will be the evidence of a persistent love for one another. Having reminded his readers that we can know that we belong to Christ 
because our lives display a faithful obedience and a likeness to Christ, John now goes on to remind them that this means that our lives will also be characterised by a persistent love for one another. You see, our Christian life is vertical in terms of our relationship with God, but it's also horizontal in terms of our relationship with one another. If you read through these verses, you actually discover that John doesn't use the word love until verse 10, and even then, he uses it as a contrast with those who claim to be genuine believers, who claim to be abiding in the light, yet their lives are gripped by hatred for a brother in Christ. And John is actually using the negative of hate here in order to strongly accentuate the positive uh, of our need to have love for one another. But before he does that, he reminds them that this was not something new. This was something that they had been very much aware of from the beginning, probably referring to the time when they first responded to the gospel and they became aware of the implications of the gospel for their walk with God. But this requirement to love goes back further than that, doesn't it? Even in the Old Testament, we find references to this requirement for God's people. In a sense, it's always been that way for the followers of the one true God. But then John goes on to seemingly contradict himself by saying there is a sense in which this is also a new commandment. Its newness finds its truth in him that is in Jesus, but it also finds its truth in us as well. And the word new here has the idea of something that is fresh in essence and vitality, but it still flows out of the old. There's a continuity between the old, but a newness in the way that it's exemplified in the life of the Lord Jesus and also in us as a consequence. Jesus brought new meaning to the concept of love for one another and he inaugurated a new era in which the darkness was being dispelled and the true light was shining. We're reminded that Jesus himself is the light of the world. He's the one who broke into the darkness of this world to make it possible for you and for I and for others to escape the darkness of sin through his once and for all sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. And that darkness will continue to dissipate, to pass away as the gospel is faithfully proclaimed and people respond in faith and repentance to the gospel message. And it will continue until the very day that Jesus brings history as we know it to a close in this world. Yes, all those who repent and put their faith and trust in him as the one who died in their place know, according to Romans 5, what it is to have God's love poured out into their hearts by the Holy Spirit. And consequently, they have the capacity to love even as God loved us in Christ. And Jesus can rightfully say to his disciples as he was gathered with them in that upper room before his arrest and crucifixion, he can say to them in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. You know, it's interesting to note the context in which Jesus gave that command to his disciples. Before he and his disciples celebrated the Passover in that upper room, we read in Luke's Gospel that the disciples had been arguing over who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. 
This was something that had reared its head a little earlier when the mother of James and John had sidled up to Jesus and she'd asked Jesus if her two sons could have the place of honour or prominence in his kingdom when he came into his kingdom, one sitting on the right, one sitting on the left. And of course, the other disciples weren't too happy about this. And those simmering tensions spilled over into that upper room. And as they gathered there to share around the Passover feast, what does Jesus do? He gets up from the table, takes off his outer robe, he wraps a towel around his waist, he gets a basin of water and he kneels down and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Despite the simmering tensions, despite the presence of the betrayer Judas, despite the spiritual ignorance that Peter himself would display, he washed all of their feet as an example that they should follow. And John 13 tells us that he demonstrated his love to them to the very end by doing this. A love that will be demonstrated in greater measure when within a few short hours he walked the lonely path to Calvary. And this is how we are to love one another, John says here in his epistle. It's more than just empty words to claim to be in the light, to be a believer in Christ and live in a state of habitual hatred, a lifestyle of animosity is totally inconceivable in John's mind. All you are doing is demonstrating you're still living in darkness. Like a blind person groping around in the dark, you are doubly blind. You can claim no assurance in your relationship with the Lord. The one who loves, however, the one who abides in the light, the true believer shows no cause of stumbling. He won't trip himself up nor anyone else spiritually because of the way that he is expressing love to his fellow believers. He experiences the full assurance of knowing who he is and being certain in his relationship with God. You know, we often refer to John as the apostle of love. But you know, it wasn't always that way. He and his brother James were first known as the sons of thunder. Hot-headed, ambitious. There was a time when John stopped somebody casting out demons in Jesus' name because he wasn't part of their elite little group. On another occasion, he wanted to call down fire from heaven to destroy a village of the Samaritans because they had rejected Jesus. And we've already made mention of the fact that he and his brother's naked ambition to be top dogs in Jesus' kingdom. But something happened to change all that. God's spirit did a work of transformation in his life as he does in each of our lives when we come to know him through faith and repentance in his finished work on the cross. And consequently, as those who know him those who walk in the light, those who abide in him, there will be demonstrated in our lives a faithful obedience to Christ, a growing likeness to Christ, a persistent love for one another. And in the light of these truths, perhaps the last word by way of challenge this morning should come to us from the pen of the Apostle Paul as it's found in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. 
Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realise this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail to meet the test, you fail to pass the test. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity of allowing your word to speak to our hearts and minds this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to do his work, that he will take this word this morning and allow us to uh, meditate on it as we go from this place, Lord, that we will truly be those who can testify that we have certainty, we have assurance in our relationship to you because we can point to the evidences of your work in our lives. And we pray, Father, that you will help us to be the people that you've called us to be, that we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen.